All right, so we're in uh, John chapter 12 today, but I wanted to ask and answer a question which relates to John chapter 11 first. So before we start John chapter 12, we'll go into a bit of revision of chapter 11 and, and look at it from a slightly different perspective. So yeah, we'll just pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful opportunity to worship you as we go through your word now. And we just thank you for your grace and we thank you for everything we learn. And Lord, that all the things that we're seeing and learning are just pictures of the reality that is today as well. Help us to apply what we learn in Jesus' name. Amen. In John 11, we saw Jesus delaying his coming his answer to prayer, so that disciples and Mary and Martha and others would. Why did Jesus hang back for two days extra? So he would die, but what was the main point? I'm glad that I'm not there, so... Faith. I'll put it up on the screen. This is the key verse I'm going to focus on uh, faith, or the word actually. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. It will help you to believe, to trust, and rely on me. However, let us go to him. So we're not going to revisit what we've already done. We're not going to talk about why Jesus seemed to ignore their painful circumstances when he could have done something about it. But the question I want to focus on today is why should we be glad or rejoice when going through suffering? This all started when I looked up what the word glad meant. It's not just, oh, I'm happy. It's it rejoiced exceedingly. Jesus was rejoicing exceedingly. So I'm just going to quickly cover what Jesus meant when he said he was glad. And then we'll look at the important principle regarding humiliation and glorification, or suffering and then glory. And then we'll look at the relationship between joy and faith and the relationship between our witness for Christ and our faith, which are married up, they're inseparable. So, firstly, what did Jesus mean when he said he was glad? Well, the word literally means to rejoice exceedingly, to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. And to put this in perspective, I'm going to just put a couple of verses up. Matthew 28, 9-10. So it's in bold. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus is saying, Rejoice exceedingly. Enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. So, so we can understand why they would be rejoicing there and experiencing a state of happiness and well-being. Jesus is alive. They'd be going, woohoo. Okay, hallelujah. He's risen from the dead. All right, let's have another look, another place where it's used. Acts chapter 5, 41, 42. Peter and John are arrested by the Sanhedrin, threatened, beaten, etc. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And I've got the same verse in the Amplified Version. And it says, So they went out from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing, that's the same word as what Jesus said when he he said he was glad, that they were being counted worthy, dignified by the indignity, 
to suffer shame and be exposed to disgrace for the sake of his name. Yet in spite of the threats, they never ceased for a single day, both in the temple area and at home, to teach and to proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So, rejoicing. Suffering and unjust or unfair treatment led them to rejoice exceedingly to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. Have you ever heard that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom? Okay, so this is the exact opposite of what the world would say produces a state of happiness and well-being. You know, go get beaten up, go get persecuted, you know, and you will enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. No, that's what the world does not say. But that's what Jesus says, and that's what we're going to talk about a bit today. So Jesus was experiencing, going back to our key verse, verse 14 and 15 in John 11, Jesus was experiencing a state of happiness and well-being as he thought about the disciples growing in their faith. Now, I tried to think of an example for this, and I came up with one. Imagine you're a parent, and you're watching your children grow up, and they're maturing, they're developing, they're they're learning new stuff, and inside, you're you're proud of them. You're thinking of them in good ways because they're maturing, they're becoming little adults, and you know you've had to make some hard choices with them and allow them to go through some hard times, but you know that that's going to be for their good, and you know that they're going to continue to grow up and to continue to mature and they're going to be better off for it. So from a parent's perspective, as you watch your children grow up, overall we have a state of happiness and well-being as we think about our children growing up and becoming mature. So looking back as parents, we don't see the tough times as a negative thing, but rather a positive because without those tough circumstances that our children go through, they wouldn't be the mature complete people they are today or are becoming, depending how old our kids are, right? So like Jesus, we sympathize with our children through the hard times, like Jesus wept, so we weep with them. Doesn't mean we don't care how they feel. We do. But with Jesus, he has the advantage of knowing the future and knowing the end from the beginning. And so his feeling of happiness and well-being and his ability to rejoice exceedingly greatly exceeds our own as parents because he knows that all of his children will finish up perfect. Isn't that cool? All of his children will finish up perfect. So the joy and the pride that we get as parents of watching our kids grow up is like infinitely more in him. So Jesus is rejoicing exceedingly because his kids are growing up. His kids are becoming more like him. And, yeah, so that's why the way I kind of um, understood that. So now we come to the second point, and I wanted to make about this verse, is the principle between regarding humiliation and glorification. And to go back to that Acts verse in the Amplified, which is still up there, it says, dignified by the indignity. So dignified by the indignity. I liken this to when it says in Hebrews that rejoice when you face discipline, when you've been disobedient, because it proves that you are a child of God, because God only disciplines those he loves, those who are his 
children. So although the chastening seems difficult, it's okay because it's actually proving to you that you're a child of God. So the we are dignified by the indignity where we are actually encouraged by the chastening, even though the chastening is negative. Does that make sense? So here, in this case, where Peter and John are suffering for the sake of the gospel, the indignity or suffering is simply an evidence of, well, God's love, but I would say the glory to come. After all, because Jesus said that we would suffer for his name and then we would be honored, we, we would receive glory. Now, if we didn't suffer then we would be wondering about the glory or reward or inheritance that was promised to us, right? So if we, God didn't chasten us as children, we'd be wondering, well, am I really his kid? I'm not being chastened. The Bible says that God loves me and will chasten me and correct me. I'm not being chastened. I do wrong things. Am I really his child? Well, if I'm following the Lord and I'm not suffering for the sake of the gospel, it would make me start wondering about, well, is there going to be a reward? There's no suffering. Is there really going to be a reward? So... Romans eight seventeen and 18. I'm going to read that one now. And this is a passage that clearly shows that for the Christian, suffering is simply a reminder of the much greater glory to come. And of that does relate back to his love, which is good. So Romans 8, 17 to 18. And if we are his children, or since we are his children, then we are his heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. Only we must share his suffering if we are to share his glory. But what of that? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present life, are not worth being compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us and in us and for us and conferred on us. So that's Romans eight seventeen to 18 in the Amplified Version. So one of the key phrases there, it's highlighted, only we must share his suffering if we are to share his glory. So Jesus said concerning when he was about to be crucified, now the Son of Man will be glorified. So glory and honor always follow suffering. And what the world considers shameful, we as Christians consider as glory. It's an upside-down world. It's an upside-down kingdom. And I love what the, um, the Amplified Version adds in here. It says, but what of that? <laughs> Who cares? So what? What's the big deal? You know, It's not worth being compared with the glory that is about to be revealed. Now, a little story here. Okay, I say to you, if you are willing to skip a meal, if you're willing to fast until dinner time, I will pay all your bills the rest of your life and give you $10,000 a month spending money. And you'll say, yeah, easy, sure. I'll go hungry for a couple of hours until my next meal. But after that, I'll never be hungry again and have all my needs met. That's a no-brainer. And I reckon you wouldn't even feel the hunger. You'd be thinking about all the benefits to come, right? So I would encourage us to consider that trials are the vehicle by which the blessings are delivered, both presently and eternally. So when we see the truck of suffering, persecution or temptation coming our way, rejoice because it's loaded with blessings. Our faith is what unlocks the precious cargo and enjoy them both here and now forevermore. 
And a verse that explains that a little bit is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, okay, going back to our original word, belief or faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus wants the best for us. What is the best for us? What makes Jesus happy and gives him a feeling of well-being? That we grow in our faith. Yes, we grow in our faith. This is what it's all about. So why is growing in our faith so important, so practical in this life? Well, we have this relationship between joy and faith and a witness for Christ. And we go to Matthew. Matthew twenty five twenty three. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And he finishes with, Enter into the joy of your Lord. So faith is simply trusting that what God says is true. If we love him and trust him, we will obey him. And then we will experience the joys of sweet communion with God right here, right now, and no matter what our situation or circumstances may be. Now, secondly, it's going to impact our witness. No faith results in no witness or testimony for Jesus, or weak faith results in a weak testimony for Jesus, whereas strong faith results in a strong witness and testimony for Jesus. So remember that the opposite of faith is unbelief and doubt, which leads to despair, hopelessness, discouragement, despondency, disillusionment, desperation, depression, feeling dismal, a feeling of gloom, heavy heartedness and unhappiness. You can keep going, all right? So think of Mary and Martha wailing in their despair, despite Jesus clearly telling them that Lazarus would rise again. Now, and that's a negative example, now compare this to Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. So we'll pick up the story in Acts chapter 16, verses 20 to 30. So this is Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi, and they're preaching there. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Notice they were severely beaten. Many stripes, it says in the New King James. Now, around midnight, Paul said to Silas, I don't know why this is happening to us. I'm starting to doubt God's existence. Maybe I should just quit the ministry and become a tent maker full time. I could enjoy financial security, live a comfortable life, have a few children, and actually be thought well of by people instead of being hated wherever I go. I mean, what's the point of all this? I've given up so much for Jesus, and for what? For nothing. Look around you, Silas. Where is God in all of this? He's not here. Where is the evidence of his love toward us right now? He doesn't even care. I've had enough. So from that point on, Paul and Silas quit the ministry, and the other disciples and apostles agreed with them that following Jesus wasn't worth the cost, because they weren't experiencing present blessing. 
So they all quit the ministry and went back to their regular jobs. Now because of a lack of discipleship, the churches grew discouraged and diminished and eventually closed their doors. Thus ends the book of Acts and the history of the church. Sorry, this sounds terrible, but it's the unfortunate story of many Christians' lives. Their faith gives way to doubt, their joy turns to depression, their witness is destroyed, and people blaspheme God on their account. They say, if that's what being a Christian looks like, then I don't want to be one. They're miserable. They will still get to heaven, these Christians, who are not walking in faith, not growing in faith, but their journey there will be on the way will be miserable, unrewarding, unfruitful, and unfulfilling. But it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to stay that way. Remember the sure mercies of God? God's mercies are new every morning. At any moment, we can choose again to start trusting in the promises of God and again be fruitful and live an abounding life. So, let's look at what the Bible says happened <laughs> with Paul and Silas, shall we? <laughs> All right. So, we'll pick it up in verse 25. This is the faith version. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Ah, that's better. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So what does prayer represent? Well, it's dependency on God, submission to God. So, how do you know if you are relying on, depending on, and submitted to God? Well, if you are praying to Him, casting your cares upon Him, and asking Him for His help, then you are depending, relying on, and submitted to God. Very simple. It is a litmus test. If you are not praying regularly, you are, consciously or unconsciously, making a decision that, I don't need God, I can sort this out myself, this problem is not too big for me, and we are actually being self-reliant and self-confident and are living a life independent of God. Even if you think you're not. The proof is in the pudding, so to speak. For us, the proof is in the prayer. Okay? So, our prayer life is the litmus test for our relationship with the Lord. Are we depending on Him? Now, what does worship represent? Now, we said they're praying and they're worshipping. Okay? So, it's a decision to honour the Lord to submit to him and to esteem him as being both Lord and Master as well as our provider and our comfort, no matter what the circumstances. So what were the other prisoners doing? They were listening, they were watching. Well, they couldn't watch because it was dark, right? Midnight, completely dark, especially in the dungeon. But they were listening, they were observing, they were wondering why these guys who were in such incredible pain due to their severe beating with untreated wounds, their bodies growing stiff, their wounds throbbing, stripped of their clothes, hungry and thirsty, cold and damp, in the pitch black, the feet in the stocks. And think about this, the temptation to be angry at their unjust treatment constantly at the back of their minds, you know, because the enemy's there talking. And with a woe is me, pity party just a thought away, oh, you know, 
going back to what I said before, you know, can't believe this is happening to us. So the prisoners were wondering how Paul and Silas could be singing praises to God and praying to God when their outward circumstances were so terrible, so dark, so depressing. I imagine that at first they would have been jeering and mocking. Oh, these guys are crazy, you know. But over time, they would have begun to wonder. Now, what effect did their faith and the resulting joy? Okay, remember, faith produces joy. Okay, as we, Jesus says, enter into the joy of your Lord as we are faithful. They were faithful. They exercised their faith. They put aside those thoughts of doubt and self-pity. They left their pity party behind and, and they said, no, we're going to focus on the Lord. Turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face. And everyone around saw their joy. And they stayed and they didn't run away when the doors opened and they heard the gospel. Now, at least the jailer and his family were saved that night and it doesn't say anything more, but I imagine that maybe some of the other prisoners might have been saved too. I just kind of like putting myself in in their situation and imagining what else might have happened that's not recorded in the Bible. But imagine the stories that would have circulated for years to come about the singing servants of God and the amazing events that transpired that night, and all because of their faith, of exercising their faith. Now consider the example of Mary and Martha. The messenger comes back with a message of the promise from Jesus, saying in John eleven four, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And then later on he says, Again, Lazarus will rise again. Point blank. But despite that, there's no demonstration of faith, just wailing. And sure, everyone was amazed when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave. But there was no talk of, wow, weren't Mary and Martha great? You know, Lazarus was dead, but they really believed that Jesus was going to do a miracle somehow. They weren't wailing or mourning. That was incredible. They must really trust what Jesus has to say. They were both sad, but there was a joy in their eyes that we couldn't explain. They had hope and joy. They were living expectantly. I wonder what the secret is. Ah, it's Jesus. Yeah. So what a fantastic testimony this could have been. How much more glory could Jesus have received if they had only believed what he had said, even after the second time when he said, your brother will rise again. So when the trials come, we should be saying, bring it on. You know, this is good. This is good for us because God is perfecting us. He's strengthening us. Okay. So Satan tries to destroy us, to humiliate us, to make us weak. But all he is doing is building us up in our precious faith that is more precious than gold. Reminding me of my reward, my eternal inheritance, the promises of God, and causing me to experience ever-increasing joy and live an abounding life. So Satan does all these things to try and hurt us, but you know what? Just like Joseph said, you meant it for evil, talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good. So God uses all of Satan's attacks, turns it around, and uses it for good, and so we can rejoice and be exceedingly glad and enjoy a state of happiness and well-being when we go through trials, and that's how it happens. So now, John chapter 12. We're just going to do the first 11 verses where Mary anoints Jesus. Okay, So we just read the first 11 verses in John chapter 12. It says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. 
but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone, she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So, verse 1. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead and whom he had raised from the dead. So, in the final week before the crucifixion, Jesus goes to Bethany. It's about two miles outside the city of Jerusalem, and he goes to the house of his friends. So, it's actually Simon the leper that's the house where the, he's at. Simon the leper's, if you go to... Matthew twenty six six and Mark fourteen three it tells you where this house was. So it wasn't Mary Martha's house. Then they made him a supper. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those sitting at the table. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. It's verses two and three. So they made him a dinner in honor of Jesus. They're making it like a a dinner or supper in in Jesus' honour. It's less than a week before the crucifixion, and his friends Martha, Lazarus, and Mary are also attending. So Mary takes a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus. So in the middle of this supper, this dinner, Mary gives Jesus a beautiful gift. Now in that culture, it's not unusual to wash the feet of a guest, but it was unusual to use very costly oil of spikenard to do it. And it was also very unusual to wipe the feet with her hair. So Mary's gift was humble. When a guest entered the home in that day, usually the guest's feet were washed with water and the guest's head was anointed with a dab of oil or perfume. And here, Mary uses precious ointment anointed the feet of Jesus. And the other Gospels tell us that she also anointed Jesus' head, so she probably anointed his head and feet. Mary's gift was extravagant, so her act of worship was extravagant. She used a a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, back in those days, people say that spices and ointments were used as like an investment because they were small, portable, and were easily sold in the open market. It's bought and sold in the open market. So Judas believed this oil was worth 300 denarii. That's 300 days wages. So it's about a year's work, considering you have a weekend or a day off each week. That's the value of this act of worship that she's done. And in the Jewish custom, 
the Jewish women would not let their hair down. That's what I've read. And so for her to do this, you know how we get self-conscious? We don't want to get out there and kind of be shamed. Well, she went beyond that. She was willing to go against her customs and um, to wash or to wipe his feet with her hair. And um, there's a guy called Erdman who says, In all of this, Mary is a study of devotion to Jesus. The life of Mary is painted for us in three memorable pictures, in each of which she is at the feet of Jesus. So here we see three aspects of church life. We see Martha working, Lazarus witnessing, and Mary worshipping. So this is something we can all, we should be doing all three, okay? So Martha working. Now, a few months previously, Martha, what did she say to Jesus? Lord, tell my sister to get in here into the kitchen and give me a hand. And Jesus says, Martha, you are troubled by many things. One thing is needful, but you're striving and stressing and troubled about many things. Luke 10.41 And the same is true of us. How often are we so busy, but not very blessed? People, here's an example. People come to simply spend time with us, but we make fancy desserts, vacuum the carpets, wash the windows, mow the lawn, sweep the veranda, and by the time they get there, we have a headache and want them to leave. So, one thing I desired, Martha, said Jesus, sitting at my feet, Mary has chosen better. Now, Martha has learned her lesson because now, several months later, the scene is repeated again. Martha is still working, only this time it's for at least 17 people. There's the disciples and Jesus and, and themselves and, and probably more. Martha's in the kitchen, but this time she's not complaining. She's had a change in attitude. So we need to be working, but not complaining and not striving, not feeling obligated, not burned out or feeling hassled. So our work for the Lord should be joyful as unto the Lord. And we need people who can work joyfully, serving joyfully, helping people practically. Lazarus witnessing. Now, it doesn't say that he said anything, but he's a major witness. Jesus is doing the talking, the teaching, of course. But Lazarus was risen from the dead. He was a new person. And so, just like people were coming to see Lazarus as an example of someone who was born again and saved, so when someone is born again, people go, oh, look at that. That person's changed. You know, And, and new believers, they draw people to themselves because before they were you know, drab, they reeked of the grave, they were bound up in all sorts of stuff. But then Jesus frees them. And then they become witnesses because people see the difference in them and are amazed. Here's a quote from Samuel Chadwick. Back in the 1900s, he said, If God is at work week by week raising men from the dead, there will always be people coming to see how it is done. You cannot find an empty church that has conversion as its leading feature. Do you want to know how to fill empty chapels? Here is the answer. Get your Lazarus. In other words, people need to be born again. And not only does conversion fill empty churches, it fills empty lives. If you're finding your own joy diminishing, well, you can ask yourself the question, when's the last time you shared your faith? Because saved sinners not only cause joy in heaven, but they bring about feasting and merriment in our own hearts as well. We rejoice too. 
Okay, it just, I don't know what, why, I can't explain it, but it just makes you feel fantastic because there's another brother or sister in the kingdom. And you know that God has been working through you, He's used you, and it's a huge privilege. So, living your life before the unbeliever in such a way that he'll be curious about the gospel is the key, not only filling empty churches, but to filling empty Christians. Find Lazarus, be Lazarus, and evangelize. Now, the third person here is Mary worshipping. And Mary is a symbol of the beauty of worship. Now, here we learn that worship is costly. All right? It might cost you a relationship. Some people say that the oil of spikenard was her dowry. So she was giving up her chance to be married, possibly. And when we worship the Lord, it can cost us. Sometimes acts of worship can be giving, it can be uh, missing out on things. Our worship can be costly. We need to be willing to give things up. When we worship, other people are going to criticize us. They'll say, oh, you're a fanatic. What are you doing standing up, raising your hands? Or why are you going out there and witnessing to those people? Why are you talking about hell with those people? You're a bit of fanatical, aren't you? But that's your act of worship to the Lord. You're speaking the words he wants you to speak in humble obedience to him. And an example in the scriptures is David dancing before the Lord with all his might, stripped down to his undergarments, and his wife mocks him. Second Samuel 6.20 And David went on to continue worshipping the Lord all the days of his life. But Michal had no child until the day of her death. Second Samuel 6.23 And the same is still true today. Those who critique or find fault with worship will experience barrenness, dryness, and a lack of productivity. So, another thing about Mary pouring the ointment on Jesus' feet now is that, to me, and I've read this in other commentaries and stuff too, it shows us that she most likely understood that Jesus was going to rise again. She was one of the very few people that really understood, I believe, that Jesus was going to rise again. She didn't use it on her brother Lazarus, most likely because, as Jesus said, she's, verse 7, let her alone, she has kept this for the day of my burial. So she's keeping it for Jesus. Now, at the cross, there were people there, but it wasn't Mary and Bethany. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, but not Mary and Bethany. And, Mary Magdalene went to anoint his body with perfume and spice on Easter morning, but not Mary Bethany. Why not? Well, I think she understood that Jesus had said, I'm going to die, be buried, and rise again after three days. Well, they didn't get it, but I think she did. I think she saw the big picture. I thought she understood there was no need to save the ointment for Jesus' burial because he wasn't going to stay buried. There was no need to go with the other Marys to the cross because that wouldn't be the end of the story. She knew that Jesus couldn't stay dead if he really was the resurrection and the life. After all, if Jesus couldn't rise again from the dead, then who could? So here's Mary anointing Jesus' feet now and recognizing he will die, but he's going to rise again. And... uh, You think of what she's just been through with Lazarus and Jesus telling her, I am the resurrection and the life. And that insight, I believe, came from her being a worshipper. So as we spend time with the Lord each morning, 
as we do our personal Bible studies, as we come to church and, and do our, our weekly things, then if we are spending time with the Lord, we'll hear the Lord's voice and we'll know his heart and he'll be able to teach us his truth. All right, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and needed to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. So again, going back to what I said before, Mary saved this ointment for my burial, but she's giving it to me now. Again, indicating that she understands he's going to rise again. So Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. So Judas very shortly would betray Jesus. And here it's contrasted to Mary's worship. You notice that? You've got Judas, who looks like a Christian, smells like a Christian, talks like a Christian, a false convert, contrasted with Mary, who is a true worshipper. And it's a very, very powerful display of love that Mary gives. And Judas does not understand it because his heart isn't there. He's not a follower of the Lord. So Judas successfully hid the darkness of his heart from everyone except Jesus. And so, as I was just saying, Judas teaches us that outward appearances can be deceptive. There are false converts in the church. Many people can have a religious facade that hides secret sin. So Judas had a sharp sense of financial values. He knew that this oil was worth 300 days wages, like a year's wages. You know, if a person earns $80,000, that's $80,000 worth of oil, of spice that was poured onto Jesus. But he didn't appreciate or value what God valued. See, his mind was on the things of the world. Oh, that's a lot of money. But for us, nothing is too much. Nothing is too important to give to the Lord. We are willing to give up everything. So worship is costly. And verse 8, For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. In other words, I believe Jesus is saying, you will always have an opportunity for activity, for ministry, for serving, for evangelizing, but don't miss these precious moments of intimacy with Jesus. And there's a great example in the Song of Solomon. I take this as a beautiful love story between the beloved and the Shulamite woman their husband and wife, and they enjoy intimacy with each other. And I believe that the book overall is a wonderful, powerful picture or type of the relationship between the bride of Christ, which is a church, and Christ himself. So the Shulamite woman, I believe, represents the church, and the beloved is a picture or type of Jesus. So I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 5 and talking about how Jesus seeks us to have intimacy with him. So chapter 5, verses 2 to 6. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And she replies, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved puts his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. 
I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. So, in this passage, we see the beloved seeking intimacy with his bride, but the bride can't be bothered getting out of bed. So, notice that the beloved was not going to force his way in. She had to open the door because the lock was on her side. And this reminds us of Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. And the context of this verse is not to unbelievers, it's actually the context is Jesus is seeking intimacy with believers, the church. So there's a famous painting where there's a door with Jesus on one side and a person on the other, but there's only one door handle. And so Jesus can't open the door because it's up to the person on the other side to open the door. There's only one door handle. So, how often is Jesus knocking on our door but we are too tired, too busy, or just too lazy to get out of bed and spend time with him? Now, one thing that is interesting, the bride wasn't expecting him at that moment. She was in bed and going to sleep. And so, Jesus can come at any time and knock on the door of our heart and say, I want to spend time with you. Are you listening? We need to be ready so we don't miss out on those special times when the Lord wants to speak to us. And the bride makes two lame excuses. I might dirty my feet and I'll have to put my robe on. But in her heart, she's yearning for him. She knows, well, this is really what I want, but she makes up excuses to delay it. And then by the time she gets around to getting up and opening the door, he's gone. So the moment is passed, the opportunity lost, season over, the door closed. And someone described, I can't remember who it is, but someone described opportunities like a tennis ball. You know, it's all hairy, but a tennis ball with half of the hair shaved off. So as it comes towards you, you can grab the hairy bit. But once it's past you, it's all shaved off and you can't grab onto it because it's smooth and slippery. So the idea being that once the opportunity has passed us, we can't catch it, it's gone. And I pray that we will be sensitive to the Spirit's voice as He draws us and calls us to spend time with Him. And that we will not be too preoccupied, too tired, too busy, even with ministry. Yes, there are going to be new opportunities, but every opportunity is special and not to be missed. A personal audience with the Saviour of the world and the Creator of heaven and earth. Verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. This is a picture that keeps on going today. All right. Not only must we put Jesus to death, but we also must deal with Lazarus, concluded the Jewish, Jewish leaders, because he is a testimony of Jesus' power. But they're going to have to keep going. You know why? Because once they silence Lazarus, they need to silence the disciples and then all of the other believers. And they did try. Well, the Roman Empire took over from their efforts. Six million Christians were killed in the days of the early church. Six million were killed in effort to stamp out Christianity. However, the more Christians were killed, the stronger the church became. And Jesus said, Upon this rock, Petra, big mountain, huge rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that rock is the confession 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is built on Jesus, and it will not be destroyed. So in March 1990, Christianity Today reported that between the years 1900 and 1990, an average of 300,000 believers have been martyred every year. So persecution is not a new thing. And you know, as we keep on praying for people, that those numbers are only going up. On a different level of persecution, or think of Lazarus first. (laughs) To be in the presence of Jesus was extremely dangerous for Lazarus. It would have been safer for him, humanly speaking, to get out of town, like Jesus did a few times, right? But that was where Lazarus wanted to be. (laughs) And I mean, do you really think Lazarus was scared of dying? Are we scared of dying? Are we scared of losing anything? Are we willing to hang out with Jesus and suffer for his sake? Are we scared of losing our jobs, of being persecuted, of losing our standing in the community? Now, there's a bill being put forward in California right now that calls for all churches and church organizations to embrace the homosexual ideology, the LBGT ideology. If this passes, it will soon become illegal to speak the truth from the pulpit in California. And so we live in dangerous times, but in exciting times. So I just want to finish by reflecting on Mary's act of worship. I would suggest that the greatest blessing we can be to Christ is to spend time with him in his presence. I would also suggest that this is the source of our strength in the midst of persecution. So there's a coming persecution. How do we prepare for that? By being worshippers. He is the source of strength in the midst of persecution, hard times, and temptation. And that's why we need to be worshippers. The storm reveals the strength of the roots. A shallow-rooted tree will be blown over, but the tree, like in Psalm 1, whose roots are firm in the word of God, will not be blown over. And we need to be like that. Now, a guy called Robert Boyd Munger wrote a booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. And you can read it online. It's free now. It helps us to analyze our, the different parts of our lives and see if we've given everything over to Christ. Or are there parts that we are holding on to that haven't yet surrendered to God? And it shows us what our lives should look like because Christ is living in us. And it has like uses different rooms as, to represent different parts of our lives. So I'm just going to read out to finish the living room section. So this is about probably two minutes worth of reading and then we'll finish this and we'll pray. The living room. We walked next into the living room. This room was rather intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a sofa, and a quiet atmosphere. So remember, this is um, Jesus living in our heart. Christ, my heart, Christ's home. Okay. He, Jesus, also seemed pleased with it. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It is secluded and quiet, and we can fellowship together. Well. Naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in intimate companionship. He promised, I will be here every morning. Meet me here, and we will start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room, and he would take a book of the Bible from the bookcase. He would open it, and then we would read together. He would tell me of its riches and unfold to me its truths. He would make my heart warm as he revealed his love and his grace he had toward me. 
These were wonderful hours together. In fact, we call the living room the withdrawing room. It was a period when we had our quiet time together. But, little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why? I don't know. But I thought I was just too busy to spend time with Christ. This was not intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss a day now and then. It was examination time at the university. Then it was some other urgent emergency. I would miss it two days in a row and often more. I remember one morning when I was in a hurry, rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. As I passed the living room, the door was open. Looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace, and Jesus was sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, I thought to myself, He was my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as Lord of my home, and yet here I am neglecting him. I turned and went in. With downcast glance, I said, Blessed Master, forgive me. Have you been here all these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you I would be here every morning to meet with you. Then I was even more ashamed. He had been faithful in spite of my faithlessness. I asked his forgiveness, and he readily forgave me as he does when we are truly repentant. Jesus said, The trouble with you is this. You have been thinking of the quiet time, of the Bible study and prayer time, as a factor in your own spiritual progress. But you have forgotten that this hour means something to me also. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at great cost. I value your fellowship. Now, he said, do not neglect this hour if only for my sake. Whatever else may be your desire, remember, I want your fellowship. You know, the truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he loves me, wants me to be with him, wants to be with me and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find some time when, with your Bible and in prayer, you may be together with him. Father, I just yeah, thank you for the um, picture we get from your word, especially in John. Lord, there's persecution coming. But Lord, when we worship you, we will find the strength to endure. And Father, Mary, with her simple devotion to you, willing to count the costs, Lord, to worship you, to give up everything for you. And Lord, she understood more than other people did because she was a worshipper, I believe. And I just pray that you'll help us to be worshippers too, that we will not be coming to you for something that will benefit us, which is selfish, But Lord, we'll be coming to you because we want to bless you. Lord, change your hearts to be less selfish and more selfless. Help us to live this life, putting you first in our hearts, living not for ourselves, but living for you. And so we can be a blessing to you. Lord, I'm just amazed and astounded and overwhelmed that we can actually be a blessing to you, that you actually enjoy our presence. But Lord, you do. Lord, you filio, love, Lazarus. Lord, you had a friendship with him and you have a friendship with us you called us friends no longer call us servants but friends and I thank you 
for these things. And I pray you help us to enjoy our relationship with you now. In Jesus' name, amen.